The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, finish Jeremiah, and then back into Luke, possibly break for the summer, uh, but we'll be doing Jeremiah and Luke for the majority of the rest of this year. Uh, however, there come times, um, again, if you're a regular, as you know, where uh, as pastors, we feel that there is a particular shepherding topic that is worthy of a sermon, something that is useful for the life of the church, necessary or important, uh, and so we, we step out of that normal routine of preaching uh, to, to address a particular topic. Uh, and so today, uh, some of you may know, is the Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, if you don't know where that came from, in 1984, Ronald Reagan made a presidential declaration uh, naming this Sunday as Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, and essentially, what that means is uh, those of us who do indeed believe in the Sanctity of Life um, are encouraged to take the day and appreciate and consider the importance of the Sanctity of Life, uh, all life, and consider what we might do to, um, to engage in the fight for life that is necessary in our time. So, I will get right into it. I would first like to make a Christian defense for the sanctity of life. Sanctity is a word here meaning great significance, a set-apartedness, a reverence of life. Why is human life so important? Why is a human life valuable? Without even yet addressing the word of God, any person with a functioning conscience recognizes that murder is wrong. Perhaps things are more complicated when dealing in a time of war or self-defense or maybe even illegal execution, but everyone knows in his heart that it is wicked to kill another man out of anger or selfishness or carelessness. We call this a natural law. We know it to be true. Romans 1 teaches us that some things about God and about right and wrong can be known even from creation. And creation itself, in our hearts and in our observation, teach us that murder is wrong. But God's word does also teach us further why our hearts find murder to be evil. We look to Genesis 1 at the very creation of mankind. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. God created man separate and above all the other animals. He says, Over the fish and the birds and the creatures of the land. And then furthermore in Genesis 2, we're given a more detailed account of the creation of man. And we find there that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. God shared his very breath with us to make us alive. Humanity is something special. And we are special then because we are made in the image of God. What does that mean, to be made in the image of God? For elsewhere in scripture, we see that God is spirit. He has no body. When Jesus came to earth, he had to take on a body because he did not yet have one. So obviously the image of God is not this. It's not this face or the shape of my body. But instead, I return to where God breathed his breath into the man. 
God has no body, no lungs, no mouth. So what are we to make of this? The word here for breath is commonly used to mean life force, as in he died and his breath left him. His life force left him. And the word translated living creature has a huge semantic range of meaning to include things like a living life, a living person, a living appetite, a living mind, a living spirit, a living soul. And so we could just as well read that God breathed into man's nostrils his life force, and the man became a living soul. We are not made physically in the image of God. It is not the shape or size or configuration of body parts, but rather we are made in the image of God because we have a soul and we are a person. I'm playing with words a little to say that God is a person Don't look into that too literally, but God, in a way that people are, and in a way that chimpanzees and dogs and mushrooms are not, God and man are people. And God says it is evil to kill a person. So we have within us our natural law to teach us that murder, here meaning the unjust taking of a human life, is wrong, a sin. But we also have the witness of Scripture teaching us that we, although created beings, are made in the image of God from the very moment when God breathes his life force into us. Furthermore, after man and woman are created, they are instructed to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth as only man and woman can do. Murder is the opposite of that. Instead of producing life, murder destroys. And for what it's worth, this is the reason why racism, too, is a sin meaning to show partiality or prejudice based on ethnicity, for someone to say that whites are better than blacks or the Uyghurs need to be sterilized so they don't corrupt the Chinese culture or any of the other infinite forms of mistreatment which humans wreak upon themselves due to perceived ethnic superiority is to say, I am made in the image of God and you are not. Much like murder, this is an affront to the image of God. But let me further reinforce the significance of being made in the image of God. Let us look to Genesis 9. After Noah lands his ark after the great flood, God reiterates his instruction to man, telling him once more to fill the earth. But God adds now to his instruction. Now, he says, the beasts of the earth are given over to man for food. Man is permitted to kill animals to eat. But God continues, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God says, unlike the animals, man may not freely kill man. And in fact, this prohibition is so strong that God says, whoever does commit murder, he must be put to death in kind. It is so serious to take a life unjustly that to do so is to forfeit your own. And why? Because God made man in his own image. So even without the Bible, we know that murder is wrong. On top of that, right from the beginning, God teaches us why it is so, for we are made in his image. We are a person, a soul, unlike all other creatures. And God teaches us how seriously he takes the destruction of that image. It is not difficult to find reinforcement of the seriousness of murder in the Bible. From the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. And the word murder here is a broad word that covers killing through carelessness, what we might call negligent manslaughter. Just as it is a sin to drive a man through with a sword and take his money, so it is a sin to make a roof and cut corners so that it falls and kills those below. 
Leviticus 24, 17 says, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Proverbs 6 says there are six things that the Lord hates. One of them is hands that shed innocent blood. It is likewise in the New Testament. 1 John 3, 15 says, No murderer has eternal life abiding within him. And Revelation 21, 8 describes those who will enter the kingdom of God and those who will not. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, the second death. So hopefully then it is clear that murder, the unjust taking of a human life by intent or negligence, is a grievous sin striking against the very image of God. And so to the specific matter for today then, if it is wrong to take a human life to destroy the image of God, what is a life? When does life begin? And to put a very fine point on it, since we are talking about abortion, when does a baby become a person? Asked inversely, when, if ever, is it acceptable to terminate, to abort a pregnancy? First, from Scripture, it is clear that life begins before birth, at the very least. For one, the Old Testament civil law counts the child within a pregnant woman as a life for purposes of murder conviction. And likewise, Psalm 139, which we read earlier, says, You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In Luke, in the passages we just discussed over Advent, we see that John the Baptist, from inside Elizabeth's womb, was come upon by the Holy Spirit, and therefore must have been a fully alive person. And on top of that, he recognized the presence of Jesus in Mary's room, in Mary's womb. So Jesus must also have been his own full person. It is not entirely clear from the text, but that little embryonic Jesus in Mary's womb could have been as young as four days old. The point is that it's clear that in the eyes of God, life begins before birth. And frankly, anyone without a completely destroyed conscience can see this plainly. Because of the glory of modern medicine, we routinely deliver, either naturally or by surgery, babies who have only gestated for 23 weeks, barely halfway along a pregnancy. It would be absurd to say that my son, born March 10th, was somehow not yet alive March 9th, just because he wasn't born yet, and 20 weeks before that, he still would have had a chance to survive. So how could he not be alive even then? He was the exact same type of creature from one day to the next, and the physical location of a person changes nothing about their value. So if life obviously begins before birth, how early does it actually begin? There is no reasonable place to draw the line other than conception. Conception is the point at which the male sperm joins the female egg. And at this point, all material to form a unique life is present. No new genetic information can be added or taken away. The you-ness of you was set in stone at that moment and no later. And a process to grow and develop you into a born child and ultimately into an adult began at that time and could not be interrupted except by tragedy or outside influence. So this is the bottom line then. There is only one Christian position on the value of life, and that is that it is immensely valuable because it is in the image of God. And there is only one Christian position on when life begins, and therefore there is only one Christian position on abortion. The unjust taking of a human life is always tragic and often evil. Babies, even the unborn, are people. They are our neighbors. And therefore, abortion is the unjust taking of a human life. At best, abortion is negligent manslaughter. It is often murder, 
and at worst, it is child sacrifice. So let me please now, if you will bear with me for a few minutes, address a few arguments for abortion, since there are many. I will not go into hardly any detail because this is not the place, but please let us investigate these further together if you would like. You can join us on Wednesday, as Bobby mentioned, or discuss it with me at any time. One argument is that abortion is sometimes best for the health of the mother. First, let me draw a distinction between the physical health of the mother and other definitions of the term. For if we view abortion as the taking of a life, there is no possible way to justify it based on emotional, mental, financial, or whatever else well-being of another person, even the mother. What child has not emotionally harmed his mother? Is a growing 15-year-old subject to death because of the financial distress caused by his diet? There is no coherent case for anyone who values the life of the unborn to weigh that life against emotional or financial or mental distress. So we must then turn to the physical health of the mother. Again, we cannot be simply referring to physical pain or discomfort or even disability because a one-year-old causes all of those things. What mother does not have an aching back or a tired mind? And the constant attention required by a rowdy toddler can be every bit as disabling as crutches. So the only reasonable argument to be made for those who value life is that there might be a case where the mother's life, too, is on the line. Let me start off by saying that the scenario in which a pregnancy brought to term would literally cost the life of the mother is vanishingly rare. You may think otherwise due to the frequency with which the health of the mother argument is used, but Dr. Alan Guttmacher, the father of Planned Parenthood himself, says, today, and this was in the 60s, today, it is possible for almost any patient to be brought through pregnancy alive unless she already suffers from a fatal illness such as cancer or leukemia. And if so, abortion would be unlikely to prolong, much less save her life. So in the incredibly rare circumstance in which there actually is a toss-up or exchange between the life of the mother and the life of the child, all a Christian can do is weep with those who weep and make a difficult decision exactly the same way we would make any other. Take counsel from God, from church, from medicine, and your trusted advisors, and do the best you can with a difficult situation. From the perspective of debate on abortion, this question is no different than the same choice that a paramedic must make when he arrives at a horrific accident to find two victims on the verge of death. There is no good outcome. We must do the best we can to preserve life and be wise. A second, somewhat similar argument is that abortion offers medical or social benefits, maybe not even just to the mother, but to more around her. The medical arguments are essentially covered by the previous defense because of the great significance of the image of God. We must only consider a life for a life. But the question of social benefits is somewhat different. Some of its common forms might entail that some women or men may have conditions that essentially guarantee the untimely death or severe disability of any child they might conceive. Wouldn't we be preventing a child from having a terrible life? Or perhaps some people cannot afford to have a child or more children. Maybe their other children would suffer. Wouldn't society suffer to have to support them? But the primary objection to all of these cases is that we simply do not have the right to play God and attempt to make a value on human life. It is not our place to decide what the value of human life is versus our determination of their so-called quality of life or their usefulness to society. We can pretend for a moment that IQ is the only thing that matters. Well, 2% of everyone has an IQ below 70. So do we draw the line there? A person with an IQ of 50 will likely never attain higher than a third grade reading and math level, but can develop life skills and often more or less blend in. Is that where we draw the line? A person with an IQ of 30 will have limited ability to communicate at all, 
but can listen and understand and often will be able to learn daily self-care routines and enjoy basic social interaction? Is that where we draw the line? You could ask the same question of physical disabilities. What if a baby is missing one leg? What about both? What about all of her arms and legs? What if the child will experience pain throughout his life? What about if the pain is severe? Where do we draw the line? You could ask the same question of social or financial disabilities. What if your child will never be able to get a job? What if the child will need welfare? What if the child will take up too much time from the other children in the home? What if you won't be able to have the career that you want or take the trips that you prefer? But the question behind all of these questions ultimately is, who gets to decide how much cost is too much? And the answer is, not you and not me. We have no right to determine when a human life is not worth it. God has determined the value of the life, and he makes it clear that the value of a life is a life. A newer argument that many Christians feel unable to deal with actually sidesteps the question of when life begins or the value of life, and rather states that both of these points are irrelevant, since a woman's right to self-determination or bodily autonomy inherently supersedes any question related to the baby's life. This argument says, regardless of whether the baby is alive or has a right to life, you can't force a woman to choose the baby over herself. Now, first and foremost, Christians reject this argument because we understand that the value of life is vastly greater than the value of self-determination. Freedom is good, but it is not a core Christian value. Rather, Christians are commanded to serve, to die to ourselves. We are called slaves to righteousness. All of these are rejections of self-determination, rejections of our autonomy. But this is not compelling to one whose heart is hardened by the spirit of the age so severely that she has inverted a high good of life for a low one of freedom. The only true solution to this impasse is for the Holy Spirit to change the heart of this person and save her soul. But we can still offer a defense for the unborn in the hopes that we might persuade some who are not yet so hardened in their belief. The easiest path forward is to consider the self-determination of the baby. Why does the mother's right to choose destroy the baby's right to choose to be alive? The objection will surely come back. It's just a clump of cells. It can't think or make a determination. To which we return again to the question of who gets to decide. What is the criteria for determining when a person has the capacity required for self-determination or autonomy? Toddlers are weak and helpless and dependent on their mother, just like fetuses are, and they lack the higher mental faculties required to choose their own life or death. Is it acceptable to kill a two-year-old because of the mother's autonomy? Few would agree to these terms, so the burden is now on them to define exactly when and why it becomes acceptable to take another life by the determination of another. What is it about a nearly born baby versus a half-gestated baby versus a two-week-old fetus versus a two-day-old embryo that makes them a fundamentally different type of being from one another? We may not convince many as many have consciences that are seared by repeated sin and the deception of our world, many will never value life enough to care, but we yet must defend our unborn neighbors. The final objection that I will briefly address today is the most difficult, not because of the philosophical challenge, but because it is an incredibly emotionally charged topic and is often used as a gotcha attack against life. What about the baby conceived by rape or incest? How could you possibly subject, subject a woman or even a girl to carry the baby of a man who violated her? 
as Christians, we ought to have the best and strongest response to this objection. But we are too often caught flat-footed and end up either capitulating or ignoring this issue altogether. First of all, the Christian ethic has the best answer to the trauma of these women. God will take judgment for every sin. The evildoer will receive his reward. And God offers to any who believe that he will make you new, in part in this life and fully in the next. Complete justice and complete healing are only available in Christ. So we do not need to fear that we are uncompassionate when dealing with this situation. We will certainly be painted as such, but we need not believe it. Secondly, the absolute number of cases of pregnancy by sexual violence is vanishingly small, and so small that it would be wrong to use it as a test case for legislation or morality. But sadly, too often those who claim to defend life are very quick to grant this exception so as to gain appeal or to get them off our backs. Third, as I said before, strictly from a logical point of view, there is nothing whatsoever about the circumstances of conception to change the value of the life created. No matter how difficult or painful or traumatic, the value of a life is unchanged. The intensity of a mother's distress does not override the value of the life within her. But also in reality, we know that taking a life, aborting a child, in fact, imparts more trauma. And abortion as a response merely piles evil upon evil. It is obvious that abortion harms the baby, but it harms the mother as well. What good does it do to take a great injustice and multiply it? And I find it, frankly, sickening that in none of the 50 states can a man convicted of simple rape be sentenced to death, but the innocent baby can in every case. As a people, we have managed to grant mercy to the perpetrator whilst killing an innocent bystander as if to make compensation for his sin, a mockery of justice. As I have said, this is not an exhaustive list of arguments for abortion, nor is it an exhaustive defense against them, but I simply hope to show you that all of these common objections are well considered by the teaching of Scripture and the historical teaching of the Church, and I hope that they reinforce the fact that in the question of abortion, the highest principle is the value of the image of God. Before moving on to another vitally important matter in the battle for life, let me share with you a little bit about the current state of things. Water, please. First, it is worth pointing out that throughout all the history of God's people, from Noah to the nation of Israel, to the early church, to the reformers, through today, all serious believers have been opposed to abortion on the grounds that I have already laid out. Abortion is not a modern idea, nor is opposition to it. You can find it in Genesis 9. You can find it in the law laid down in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You can find it in Luke 1 and 2. You can find it in rabbinical Jewish teaching outside of the Bible. You can find it all throughout Christian history. Didache, Barnabas, Clement, Tertullian, Basil, Ambrose, Jerome, Augustine, Luther, Calvin. All serious Christians, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, have been in agreement on this matter all the way up until just now. That is not to say that abortion is a new problem in culture. It was not always rightly condemned by the surrounding culture, much like it is not condemned today. The greatest sin of all the people of Canaan, which Israel was commanded to destroy, was child sacrifice. Roman law permitted the patriarch of a family to kill any of his children deemed unfit or unnecessary without legal recourse. But despite the lack of regard for life shown by the powers of this world, the people of God have always stood against but in spite of our incredibly long pedigree, the killing of children remains an enduring blight on our societies. 
Since the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade in 1973, when we have begun keeping real track of these things, 63 million babies have been aborted, according to the CDC and Planned Parenthood. They both also agree that approximately one in five pregnancies in America is aborted. And in spite of some recent victories, such as the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which returned laws about abortion to the level of the state, there is one area in which Christians, or perhaps I will say Protestants in particular, have still colossally dropped the ball. It is something you might call a hidden battlefield, something rarely spoken of in our churches, even in our homes. So brothers and sisters, today I want to warn you about birth control. To begin, I want to give some definitions surrounding birth control. We can classify it into four general groupings. First, there are so-called natural methods, which include things like avoiding intercourse during certain times, and coitus interruptus, which, in service of keeping this suitable for our children, means stopping a certain act before it is complete. The second form of birth control is what I will call an obstruction or a barrier, a physical blockage between the man and woman. Between these two categories, the sperm never reaches the egg. The third classification is hormonal birth control. This includes most popular methods today, such as the pill and implanted devices. Essentially, these methods, through various means, manipulate the woman's biological process to inhibit pregnancy. And then lastly, there are openly abortive methods, such as Plan B and surgical abortion. These methods recognize the existence of an embryo or fetus and take various lengths to destroy it anyway. If you are agnostic about the barbarity of abortion, even in our modern age, I recommend you read about surgical abortions. But of these, the category I most wish to discuss is hormonal birth control. The abortive methods of birth control are generally already agreed upon by serious Christians to be wrong. But various forms of hormonal birth control, either by deception or willful ignorance, have crept into the church largely unaddressed. And so, just that we are clear about what I am referring to, hormonal birth control includes these common methods on the market. Pills taken either after intercourse, such as Plan B or morning after pills, or pills taken on a regular schedule, regardless of sexual activity. Both are designed to deliver doses of hormones or medication. Injections to do the same. Patches to do the same, to deliver doses of hormones or medications. Devices attached or inserted into the body, such as rings, designed to release hormones or medication over time and implants, or IUDs, which are surgically inserted to deliver hormones or medication over a long period of time. Now I'm going to use some medical language here to make sure everything is clear. Immediately after intercourse, the male sperm travel into a woman's uterus and up the fallopian tubes into an ovary, wherein they hope to find an egg ready for fertilization. An egg is only present when a woman is ovulating, which occurs in the opposite time of her menstrual cycle as her period. If an egg is found, the first sperm to reach it inserts itself into the egg. The egg and sperm combine their genetic material to form a single-celled embryo. At this moment, all of the material required to produce human life is now present. All of your DNA existed in its entirety right at that moment. Your hair color and the comparative length of your fingers and your brain chemistry and everything were all written down right here. This is called conception. After conception, the embryo begins to multiply. One cell becomes two and four and eight. And the embryo begins to move back down the fallopian tube, seeking the main chamber of the uterus, also called the womb. After four to seven days, the embryo reaches the womb where it seeks to implant itself on the uterine lining in order to receive nutrients and shelter from its mother. At this stage, some of the many cells in the embryo are already beginning to specialize, soon to become a heart, a brain, 
a lung. The implanted embryo undergoes rapid multiplication and birth, aided and protected by the mother, and after a mere 22 days, a heart begins to beat. From here, anyone who has born a child has surely seen the ultrasounds. Additional development occurs rapidly. All forms of hormonal birth control prevent pregnancy. First, hormonal birth control methods seek to prevent ovulation in the woman. In this case, an egg is never deposited in the ovary, meaning that any sperm which arrive there find nothing to impregnate. Second, should that method fail, hormonal birth control methods seek to prevent the sperm from reaching the egg at all by means of modifying the mucus which lines the uterus, making it too difficult for them to travel. And lastly, should all else fail, and the sperm does indeed reach and impregnate the egg, hormonal birth control methods also attempt to alter the lining of the uterus, the womb, to prevent the egg from implanting itself, therefore causing the embryo to find no safe harbor, and it is either absorbed or expelled. And this, brothers and sisters, is the crux of the matter today. Based on the argument for the value of life, there is absolutely nothing that differentiates an embryo from an implanted embryo. The value of life is not dependent on the size of life, nor the level of development of life, nor the physical location of life. After conception, that little embryo, that little person, swims down the fallopian tube, seeking the warm embrace of its mother, food and shelter so that it can grow. But all forms of hormonal birth control that are available today attempt to obstruct that embryo, to physically block the developing baby from its own mother, the very source of its life and nourishment. The embryo is left with no home and no one to care for it, and it inevitably dies. Let me be very clear. This means that all forms of hormonal birth control currently available have the potential to kill an alive human being. Any method of birth control that has a mechanism which prevents implantation should not be used. This means pills, injections, IUDs, rings, patches, and any other application that provides an unnatural dose of either estrogen or progesterone, the two hormones involved. It also includes any after-the-fact medications such as Plan B, which include medications such as Levonorgestrel, Mifepristone, or Methotrexate. All of these methods of birth control have the possibility to kill a living human being. This reality also puts significant restraints on in vitro fertilization. There are already hesitations about IVF simply on the grounds that it separates the generation of life from the marital conjugal union. But regardless of any questions about that, most standard forms of IVF result in dozens or more fertilized embryos frozen indefinitely, never to be warmed and grown in their mother's womb. Embryos, as we have seen, that are very much living persons. No form of IVF which results in embryos that are to be discarded or filed away is acceptable. And I know that this is an impolite topic of conversation. I may have offended or even hurt some of you, and so I again want to pause and give due attention to some common objections to the argument that I have just made. First, some might say that there is a difference between conception and implantation, and in fact that life does not begin until implantation. Of all the possible conspiracies in the world, this is, I believe, the most abhorrent. The line between conception and implantation was invented in 1965. In that year, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology issued a bulletin in which the medical definition of pregnancy was changed from fertilization to implantation. 
We were aware of the difference prior to this. There was perhaps even debate on when life begins prior to this. There were those who disagreed, but no serious major medical organization recognized a fundamental difference between conception and implantation prior to this declaration in 1965. Something else happened in 1965. The Supreme Court case Griswold versus Connecticut legalized contraception nationwide and established a previously non-existent right to privacy. And so, as it turns out, the very moment contraception became legal and therefore profitable, major medical organizations decided that contraception also certainly did not cause abortions. And therefore, everyone was free to take it guilt-free. I don't mean to be conspiratorial, but this is literally a conspiracy between the medical establishment and the government to give moral permission to people to use birth control because they insist that it does not cause abortions. These recently legalized birth control methods are causing abortions. It takes five days on average for an embryo to implant. What about that embryo as it makes its way down to the womb is not a life, but suddenly is the moment it's implanted. It gets bigger? What does that have to do with anything? Some might argue, well, an unimplanted embryo couldn't possibly survive. Yes, but neither can a 10-week-old implanted embryo that fails to develop a heart. When that happens, we call it a miscarriage, and it is a tragic loss of life. The destruction of a one-week-old unimplanted embryo is no less tragic. Others may argue that hormonal birth control only have a small chance of causing an abortion, for they attempt other methods of prevention first. Prevention of implantation, after all, is only the last resort. But even the most effective forms of hormonal birth control still statistically result in one unimplanted embryo every few years. No matter how effective the prevention of ovulation or the prevention of the sperm reaching the egg are, even the most effective methods of hormonal birth control result in, on average, one embryo created and failed to implant every few years. Why would anyone risk an action that was expected to kill only one of their children every few years. The unborn are no different than the born. The risk is not acceptable. Now, there are cases when the same chemicals used as birth control may be useful for other medical purposes. What about women who, for example, are prescribed an IUD to treat painful endometriosis? By all means, let us have compassion on those who are suffering but let us not use that compassion as a cover for death. To say it plainly, if a woman has a condition that motivates her to take hormonal birth control or the same medications contained within, she is obligated to investigate all other options, and if she decides to continue to take them, to then take the necessary precautions to avoid the destruction of life. That means timing intercourse. That means using barriers. That may mean abstinence, because life is on the line. I shared earlier that one in five pregnancies are aborted, 63 million lives lost since 1973. But those numbers use the deceptive definition of abortion that only includes implanted embryos. It is unimaginable how much higher the true toll is in human life due to chemical abortion. Based on the calculations of some pharmacy experts, combined with information from birth control providers, the true number of lives lost is likely 10 times as high. I said it earlier, and I will not back down now. Abortion is at best negligent manslaughter. It is often murder, and at worst, it is explicit child sacrifice at the altar of wealth, comfort, and convenience. 
and hormonal birth control is no exception. So what then are we to do? Who is responsible for these lives? Beloved, you are. I am. If you have procured or caused an abortion, or if you have, through your ignorance or with intent, undergone an abortive birth control regimen, you are guilty. Early in my marriage, we used hormonal birth control. I pled ignorance. I did not consider it. I forfeited the decision to my wife based on a recommendation of convenience. And not only that, I said I thought it was fine. We did not intend evil, but we did not prevent it either. And I, as the man, as the husband, and as the father, am responsible for the protection of my family and of all mankind. And I stood by. No one warned me about what I was doing, but ignorance is no excuse, for I knew that I was engaging in an act that is meant to bring about human life, and yet somehow it was not brought about. I had no excuse but to look into it, and I did not. So I say this to reinforce that men and women are both culpable. Women, stop procuring abortions. Stop encouraging others to get abortions. Stop taking birth control that could cause abortions. Men, stop encouraging abortions. Stop ignoring abortions. Stop abdicating your role as the protector of the weak. Church, stop ignoring this bloodshed. Defend the image of God. How long will we be silent? In Titus 2, God commands the older women in the church to teach younger women how to love their children. How long will we allow ignorance and discomfort to cause us to abandon our children to the cold? To our rulers, your hands are covered in blood. You allow, excuse, and encourage the wholesale slaughter of our children. You are put in your office by God to be a terror to those who do evil, and yet you pay for it. Stop lying about life. Stop deceiving your subjects. Brothers and sisters, stop voting for those who commit crimes against the image of God. Not one of us is free from this yoke. We are all crushed under the weight of the millions of lives struck down in their most helpless state. As I said before of the rapist, so it is true of the murderer. The Lord will repay evil. He will bring justice. Someone will defend the defenseless. It will be God. Every life will be accounted for. Isaiah 26 says, Behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. We live in a culture of death. Many of us, maybe all of us, have been complicit in it. All of us have disregarded the destruction of life in our midst. The Lord warns his people against complacency. Leviticus 20 says, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land must stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man and cut him off from my people, because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against all the people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. Who among us has not closed his eyes to depravity? Who has not pled ignorance to the massacre of children? Our land, homes, our churches, 
are polluted with the blood of the innocent. Let me be once more clear. The sin of abortion, which is the killing of God's beloved children, leads to judgment and death. And yet there is hope, even for the most wretched of sinners. Hear the word of God from Ephesians 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Awake, O sleeper. No longer be ignorant. No longer be hardened. No longer be complicit in the blood guilt of this land. God offers you his forgiveness. Repent of your wickedness. Repent of your sins. The church is not the good place where good people live. This is not the place where we pretend to be above evil, where we smugly look down upon those who have the wrong opinions about evil. This is not the place to lie about your sins to God, to yourself, or to any of us. This is the place to receive forgiveness from them. 1 Corinthians 6 says, speaking of the church to the church, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. Such was I. Complicit to evil. Complicit to destruction. Worthy only of destruction. And yet God has forgiven me. He has washed me. Jesus has paid my debt. I have been redeemed from my guilt. And so can you. Beg the Lord's forgiveness and he promises to grant it. For Jesus has shed his blood on your behalf. For the life of man must life be taken. Jesus has shed his blood on your behalf. And then we who are forgiven, what else must we do? First, we must tell the truth. Do not hide the reality of death from those who walk in it. Do not settle as I did for ignorance or superiority. I never sought an abortion. I have the correct beliefs about abortion. But I'm no better than the most wretched of sinners. I have no case to make for my own worth but that of Christ. Call our land, soaked with blood as it is, to repentance and start with yourself. Tell the truth to yourself. Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to one another. Flee wickedness. Proclaim the sin of the murder of the unborn and proclaim the forgiveness of sin for those who repent. Do not shy away from the defense of our littlest neighbors. They, among all others, most need our advocacy. You who are older women, and this now includes all of you who have heard this, for you now know, teach the younger ones to love their children. Tell your friends, your daughters, your sisters, your nieces, tell them the truth about abortion, all forms. That means having uncomfortable conversations. Life is on the line. Defend the helpless. To all of us, we must reject bloodshed and reclaim its opposite, fruitfulness. From the beginning, God commanded man to be fruitful, 
bear children, desire children, love children as God does. Frankly, have more. Be open to having more. Be open to having more children than you think you would be. God loves children and he hates those who bring them harm. How many of God's beautiful children have been snuffed out in the womb for reasons of prudence and planning? The very place where they were meant to be most safe has become their grave. How many of those lives were lost within the church for reasons of stewardship, the so-called godly word for prudence and planning? The church, and let me say foundation, ought to be a place where God's glory in our fruitfulness is on full display. Our children bear the image of God, born or not, and so may we have many. And lastly, in the same vein, adopt children. Prepare yourselves to take those whom no one else wants, the undesirable, the expensive, the costly. Consider adopting frozen embryos left as the result of careless in vitro fertilization. I aspire to be a church where we are ready and willing to adopt any number of children. We will love them all, for they are all made in the image of God. Please pray with me. Father, we have taken life. We have been careless with life. We have ignored the cries of those alive. Please forgive us. Wash our hands of the blood that's on them. Cleanse our land for the blood that soaks it. Change the hearts and minds of your people and all people that these precious children made in your image might live. Forgive each of us. Forgive me for our ignorance and our complicity in this matter, for our carelessness, for our unwillingness to speak up, for our unwillingness to look into things that we should know better. Thank you that your child was given over for us. All sermons are released pay the price under a creative for our disregard for our children. No derivative 3.0 license. Thank you for Jesus. If you would like to Thank learn you more for free. or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.